I hate it when I find myself agreeing with people with whom I usually disagree. These are the opening lines of a book written by my guest on the podcast today. She's a progressive professor, but she now finds herself breaking ranks with the left over which works of literature are acceptable to be read and discussed in America's classrooms. If someone decides a priori that I'm only going to teach books that what, that deliver my message, that's just as proselytizing, it's just as one-sided, and it's just as brainwashing as a kind of right-wing propaganda. Deborah Appleman is the Hollis L. Caswell Professor of Educational Studies at Carleton College and an instructor at the Minnesota Correctional Facility Stillwater. Her latest book is called Literature and the New Culture Wars, Triggers, Cancel Culture, and The Teacher's Dilemma. Deborah Appleman is my guest today on Lean Out. Deborah, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. So wonderful to have you here. Uh, There's a lot to talk about in this book. And as I've said to you, I think the timing on it is perfect. Let's start here. In the book, you, you quote Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who has called literature the messy stories of humanity. But there has been a lot of disagreement in recent years over what stories get taught and how, probably more than I've seen in my lifetime. There are calls for book bannings, for removing classic texts from the canon, for elaborate trigger warnings. You taught in high school before becoming a professor at Carleton College. At what point did you begin to notice this trend taking hold? Well, it's such an interesting question, Tara, because I think there's always been censorship And when I was a high school teacher, I noticed that the push to ban certain books was usually from people who identified themselves as being on the right side of the political spectrum. People who were worried about explicit sexual themes, people who were worried about inappropriate language, people who were worried about subject matter that they thought was inappropriate for adolescents. And so the challenges to those books always came from the right. And we were kind of armed by the American Library Association and our professional associations to try to provide some rationales for why to read the books. But lately, in the last five years or so, um, the arguments and the push for censorship has come from the left as well, which is why the first chapter of my book is Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, Here I am stuck in the middle with you, and I'm not used to not uh, agreeing with people who I consider to be my political bedfellows, but the kind of, you know, uber vigilance about the lives of authors or the ways in which if certain portrayals are problematic, that the solution is to not teach the book at all. That is pretty new stuff. And so that's why this feels particularly urgent for people who care about the teaching of literature, because we're being pressed from both sides. And that's why I felt compelled to write the book. Mm. 
And you you wrote in Newsweek that you have become a reluctant warrior against cancel culture. You identify as part of the progressive left. I also come from the progressive left, but but you found yourself becoming increasingly critical of its tactics. What impacts of cancel culture have you observed in the classroom? So I've observed this both in the high school classroom and in the college classroom. One of the things that I've observed in the college classroom is, and this is slightly different, but something that I also talk about is the ubiquity of trigger warnings for the recipients of literature. And so we have this culture that in some ways almost sort of fetishizes the sense that we have to make sure that everybody's well-being is taken care of in the literature classroom. But as the quote you opened our conversation with suggests, literature is messy. And actually, our idea for teaching literature is to mess things up, is to make us feel um, some negative feelings, to make us feel sad, to make us feel horrified, to make us feel empathy with things that are going on. So if we clean everything up, so that no one ever experiences any emotional discomfort. The canon of most of our literature, both classic and contemporary, is going to you know, be eviscerated. For example, one example that I cite from a college classroom is when several female students approached a women's studies professor complaining that Toni Morrison was on the syllabus with the bluest eye and they knew that it had incest in it and it was triggering. And the funny thing is, and this is something that I've experienced too, it wasn't triggering for them personally. Mm. It, they were they were complaining by proxy. Someone somewhere has experienced incest. That's a horrible thing. But the teacher was devastated that the students didn't trust her enough to figure out how to navigate it. So triggering is something that I've seen a lot. In my college campus, the there was going to be a production of The Merchant of Venice. And the teacher, I mean, teaching revenge tragedies right now is like a nightmare. <laughs> teaching Shakespeare is a nightmare. Well, there was a poster for the play that was, it was a drawing, a beautiful drawing of a knife with a single drop of blood coming from it. And a student group insisted that the professor take it down because the violence was triggering to them. I mean, last night I was at a high security prison for men until 10 o'clock teaching a creative writing class. I mean, it's kind of like, come on guys, <laughs> it's not really, <laughs> that's not really violence. The other thing that has really been impacting high school classrooms in addition to the censoring of books like Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird, which I'm not saying shouldn't be augmented with more contemporary choices, but I don't think they should be banned, has been the wholesale banning of people like Sherman Alexie, mm. uh, which actually was the starting point for me. I can hardly talk about it without crying. When I was a high school teacher, especially when I was in Minneapolis with a large native population, Having students read Sherman Alexie was like a gift. And I've always thought as a high school teacher that what I'm doing is gifting them with literature, right? That it's like an opportunity for them to experience things that are both 
affirming to their own identity, as well as eye-opening, this idea of windows and mirrors, seeing yourself, but then looking out to see other people. Mm. And I can't tell you the number of times that students, Native students, came up to me and said, all my life, all 16 years of it, right? (laughs) I've been waiting to read something by a Native author. And now I have and he's awesome, and thank you. And some people can make the argument, well, you can read Tommy Orange, or you can read some of the women that he allegedly took advantage of. But I do believe that there are some talents and voices that are so unique that they're not replaceable. In my opinion, Sherman Alexie is one of them. Toni Morrison is one of them. And one of the things that's happened, which I'm not sure that the progressive left is as uh, aware of as they should be, is that we're canceling the very kind of diverse authors, authors of color that people have been crying for, for the past 40 years. So that's part of what I've been seeing as well. Mm. Lots to talk about there. I mean, one of the things that strikes me with the trigger warnings, going back to that, as you point out in the book, that the great literature often makes us really uncomfortable. It shakes the foundations of who we are, how we see the world. And as you're saying, you know, the trigger warnings can upend that experience. It can almost instruct students what that experience is before they enter it, as opposed to making up their own minds about what that means. Do you think it also sends a message to students that they are fragile? Oh, my gosh, yes. And I mean, I've had so many conversations lately in my in my college classroom with students and in my office. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my students. They're wonderful human beings and they will grow up to be incredible adults. But, you know, one student, I had a conversation with a student yesterday about whether she should take a mental health day and not come to class. It was complicated by the fact that they were doing a group project. Her group was needing her. I like to think that my classroom is a warm, welcoming, nurturing place. There are 24 other young people there. And when I do a cost-benefit analysis of what would be better for that student to stay in her dorm bedroom, you know, swaddled under covers, or to be out in the world with other human beings who understand her grief, who understand her pain, who understand even her fragility, I keep thinking that they're making the wrong choice. And I don't want to be callous and say, what do you mean you're going to take a a mental health day or wear a T-shirt that says, you know what, it's not always all about you. Mm. Because one of the things that I said to her is you are in this protected bubble right now where there is an army of adults like me who get paid to care deeply about you. I would care about you for free anyway, but part of my job is to care about you, to help shepherd you through these, you know, kind of tricky waters. But guess what? When you graduate, there's not going to be an army of nicely paid people whose job it is to make sure that you don't get hurt, that you don't break. That's going to be up to you and you're not going to get to opt out. You know, a long time ago, the wonderful Vivian Paley, who taught at a lab school at the University of Chicago, when she was writing about little kids, one of the titles of her book is, you can't say you won't play. 
You, you can't say that. You can't say, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm too fragile for this. I can't watch this. I can't read this. I can't participate in this. You can't say you won't play because playing in the literature classroom means learning how to be uncomfortable and learning to feel the discomfort of others. And one of the quotes that I used in the book was also by James Baldwin, who mm. said, I used to think, you know, that my life was terrible and that the grief that I and pain that I was feeling was only my own. And then I began to read. And then I realized that what I was feeling was felt by other people in other circumstances, in other ways, and that it connected him to those other people so that he didn't feel so isolated, right? But it also made him realize that there was nothing so solipsistic and unique about his own particular grief and that maybe what he needed to do is to like step back and think about not just being about him, but being about the human condition. That's what I've noticed from my students is that their focus tends to be more on themselves than, you know, what is it that we're experiencing together as a culture? Is this about COVID? Is this about stress? Is this about the economy? Is this about you know, the kind of political terrorism that we're witnessing. So, yeah, it's it, the trigger warnings, I think, are not really serving our students very well at all. Mm, I love that James Baldwin quote. And so much of my life has come to me through books. I think that the ability to inhabit so many different worlds as a child and as an adolescent helped me with interviewing, right? Because the exercise in interviewing is really deeply listening to the other person's experience. And these are, these are transferable skills, right? One of the things you also point out is in this sort of social justice orthodoxy, there is an assumption at work that all literature must be a political project. And, and the extension of that is that art cannot exist for art's sake. And this is kind of a puritanical idea that there's no pursuits outside of the moral project. How do we separate reading and the richness of reading from political endeavors, which are so toxic and so polarized right now? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Ironically, I was thinking about that with an NPR story about a climate change activist who had thrown tomato soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers. Mm -hmm. And she was defending it by saying that the climate, the world is more important than this piece of art. And she's going to use this piece of art to serve her political purposes. And it's, it's really tricky. I mean, it's, you hit the nail on the head by talking about particular kinds of orthodoxies. So it's sort of like, if there is a singular dogmatic viewpoint that is driving the curriculum, that's wrong, even if it's a viewpoint whose politics align with yours, because that's a kind of brainwashing. It's not just the right that can brainwash, the left can brainwash too. And art exists, yes, there, there is political art that can be incredibly effective and move us to action, but art is also a reflection of the human experience. And it has an aesthetic purpose that is not necessarily instrumental. We read for reading's sake, we view for viewing's sake, we listen for listening's sake, because that's part of what it is to make us human. So 
One of the issues that I have with the social justice curriculum per se is that their aim, their objectives, their goals are not literary in any way. So that the the book, the texts become a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And it's a different end, and it's not an aesthetic end, and it's a sort of political end. And yes, I read literature to help young people feel more human, to help them have the empathy that, you know, you just talked about needing even, you know, to be an interviewer, right? You need to listen to other people, understand where they're coming from. And that's what we want from all human beings. We want them to be able to understand who other people are where they're coming from, and that their feelings and thoughts and beliefs need to be attended to. Um, so in and of itself, see, this is the thing that that gets me. I think that literature literature is political naturally in the sense that it's trying to help you navigate other worlds. So it's it's political broadly construed. Being a teacher is a political act. You're saying that someone's education is really important. Everyone should be educated. That's the bedrock of democracy, this belief that we have. So if someone decides a priori that I'm only going to teach books that what, that deliver my message, that's just as proselytizing, it's just as one-sided, and it's just as brainwashing as a kind of right-wing propaganda. So that's where I have trouble with it. Mm. You also in the book refer to the work of Amna Khalid and Jeffrey Snyder, who have both been on this podcast, and they have a concept, the tyranny of presentism. Can you define that? Right. And um, Amna and Jeff are colleagues of mine, and I actually acknowledge them in the book because they were so helpful. The presentism is such an important concept because one of the things that's happening in literature is that Critics are superimposing a 21st century morality compass onto 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and even 20th century texts. This is what's happening with Shakespeare. This is what's happening with, you know, the way in which Mark Twain uses the N-word, which I'm not defending. Uh, we, we could have a whole complicated podcast just about that alone. But Authors create and reflect the world in which they're living. And we can't really hold them hostage, right, to the mores and feelings and values of our 21st century world. And we sometimes forget what it is that's going into the portrayal. For example, when I was a high school teacher, I taught The Merchant of Venice I'm Jewish, and I had a colleague who is Jewish as well, and he said, how can you teach that book? It's anti-Semitic because Shylock is a moneylender. Well, in Shakespeare's day, Jews could not own land. They were forbidden for being land, from being landowners, and there was a finite number of occupations that historically a Jewish person in that time would naturally take. And lending money was one of them. Now, that does not absolve any of the tropes that people can see and read, but it has some explanatory power. Why is Shakespeare 
having the character do this in what way. He wasn't a person who was working for, you know, a, a studio in Hollywood or any of the other kind of more contemporary stereotypes that we have. And the same thing is true for the way that women are treated, the way we think about gender, the way we think about relationships, and the way we use certain language. So the presentism suggests that every book we read, regardless of when it was written, needs to kind of reflect our contemporary moral code. And it can't, and it shouldn't. What we can do is to take our contemporary moral code, view the book through that lens and say, how have we grown? What's still the same, right? Like in my prison class, we just read Letter to My Nephew by James Baldwin. You can tell what a giant fan of his, his I am. And then we were talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me. We were talking about the fact that Baldwin wrote this in 1962, what's changed and what's not changed, right? And mm. so I think that the that the cult of presentism is something that is trying to make education, schooling, our language, this sort of contemporary reflexive project where all we do is just kind of inhabit the world that we have, reinforce the, the values that we have, and expect everything to fall along those lines as well. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think, I mean, what you're advocating for here in the book is troubling what these so-called problematic texts are, like teaching them instead of erasing them, giving right. students this range of critical lenses to look at them from. And I really like that plurality and I really like that trust in students. One thing it makes me wonder about is some of the tendencies of critical theories uh, are, are really about kind of problematizing everything. And so when I look back on my undergrad, I read a ton of feminist theory. And I would look back on some of my readings and that I think they were probably misreadings. They were over problematizing. Like, how do we avoid that tendency when we're giving all these critical lenses? Yeah. So, I mean, a book that that I've written that's pretty widely used is called Critical Encounters, and it's about teaching literary theory to secondary students. And I do use gender. Um, I use reader response. I use post-colonialism. I use Marxist literary theory or class, so you can teach it <laughs> in Texas. Um, I, I have a whole bunch of them. And the point is, what you just said, the point is multiplicity. Mm. So I agree with you completely. It's sort of like, uh, we say it's Mark Twain, but it was really Abraham Maslow who said, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think that's one of the things that happened in our undergraduate literary theory classes that we were like looking for all these nails, depending on, you know, are we doing feminist theory or what? But if you have a toolkit, really, an intellectual and theoretical toolkit where you're looking to see how is gender played out, you're looking to, to look at the structure of the language, you're trying to think about the way in which class is visible or not visible, um, you're looking at the stance of the author and the degree to which the life of the author bleeds into right, the text, then you're not on a symbol hunt for one thing. 
And I agree that too much critique can take the joy out of reading and people (laughs) just sometimes just read it and not analyze it and just kind of think about what it means for them. But for me, the answer to your question is the notion of multiplicity and also of letting people, giving people enough tools so that they create the interpretation that makes the most sense to them. Mm-hmm. And you you do raise the issue of critical race theory in the book. This is the biggest issue probably in education right now. Um, and that you, you mentioned this has been oversimplified by both sides. Um, I have had a number of black writers and thinkers on the show, one of whom has studied uh, critical race theory in law school, another who has resisted uh, CRT in the charter schools that he ran in the Bronx. So the arguments that I've been hearing is that while CRT itself is not taught, as you point out, it's a legal theory, the ideas are, and that there's a discomfort with this idea of looking at the world through the lens of race and dividing children up into racial identities, that that might be unhealthy to teach white kids, um, you know, that they inherently have privilege and take part in oppression of others. And it's equally unhealthy to teach black kids that the odds are stacked against them, that this robs them of agency. Now, critically, everyone I spoke to did not object to CRT being taught, but objected to it being taught as truth instead of a perspective. How do you process kind of all those arguments? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot because in the book that I was just mentioning, I'm about to work on the fourth edition and I actually am going to add critical race theory, partly because when I go to colleges and talk to teachers, they're saying that there's some, and I think about the work of Henry Louis Gates Jr., for example, you know, I'm thinking that I need to, I'm going to trouble it for sure, but I'm definitely going to include it. The The argument that some people make reminds me of when I first started teaching feminist theory. And like, you know, there's no one harder to teach feminist theory to than a 16-year-old boy. Um, and he was, there was one boy who said, I, you know, why are we just talking about women, women, women? And why are we looking at everything through a feminist lens? Where's mm. the male lens? And I said to him, the male lens is everywhere. We've all been looking through the male lens through the beginning of time. So this is this lens is corrective. <laughs> We're trying to correct the vision so that it's not always on one side. And so when I think about, you know, as you put it, you know, looking at things through the lens of race, people always look at things through the lens of race. People have looking been looking through things through the lens of race when, you know, they don't hire a person of color, you know, for a particular job. When they redline housing districts, right? You know, when there are different kinds of mortgage rates, different kinds of salaries, different ways in which we use language, we always look at the world through race. But we look at the world mostly through the lens of whiteness, right? So the first thing is to say that it's not like we're introducing the idea of using race to view the world. That's why racism exists, right? Um, The second thing is to say that it doesn't have to be, this is where it gets so oversimplified. It doesn't have to be from a deficit perspective, just like the feminist or gender lens doesn't say women are wonderful and men are terrible, right? It's not that. 
It's about nuancing the differences and thinking about different ways in which we're positioned in society. So too, critical race theory doesn't say everything black is great and has been disadvantaged and everything white is terrible. That's looking at things from a deficit perspective. From its best workings with all kinds of politically driven theories, we're looking at the ways in which the society we live in, the culture we live in is informed by and driven by certain kinds of structures. And we have to look as a society and ask ourselves the question, are these, you know, <laughs> it's, I call it the Dr. Phil question. How's that working for you? Right? Mm -hmm. How is that working for you? I mean, let's look at the way the dynamics that are in place and then taking a step back. There's nothing accusatory inherently in critical race theory. And there's nothing accusatory inherently in gender theory either. And I'm making that analogy because I think that it's useful because there are ways in which the structure are similar. We're looking at power. We're looking at who has it and who doesn't. We're looking at what are the, what are the reasons why. We're looking at how things have changed over time. And it's like so hard for me to understand how this um, misunderstanding took place, how parents, school boards latched onto this CRT as, you know, this monster of the 21st century. I just really don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have some guesses about, you know, a lot of my guesses kind of lead back to our political reality over the last eight years or so, the ways in which as a culture, we've been given permission to be to be hateful, for white people to feel like they're under siege, to her, you know, that make America great again was really make America white again, so that the fear of misplacement and all different kinds of things was invoiced and reified in a way. Um, and so critical race theory, I think, is part of this larger fabric of white fear that has been fueled by, to be honest, some really despicable people um, who, who haven't read a word of it, right, who don't understand it at mm. all. So what I'm going to try and do, um, I, I know it's going to be hard and tricky, but what I'm going to try to do is figure out, you know, what are the ways that it can be useful? How, how can we kind of take a look at how things are being used in a way and that can be helpful and not essentialize it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think your point about things being oversimplified is a really important one, because I'm hearing, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about Camille Foster. Uh, a thinker that I follow quite closely and hearing him on a podcast with Thomas Chatterton Williams and saying, you know, our children, their particular children are some of the most advantaged in America. They will get every uh, opportunity. They have wonderful educations. They have two parent families, loving homes, supportive homes, and that their children are very far from disadvantaged and that they resist and reject this lens of painting them as disadvantaged. So I think these things get very complicated. It does. I mean, for a while in education, there was this thinker, if I can use that term, named Ruby Payne, who was doing in-service teaching teachers about the culture of poverty 
And it was, I mean, it was well-intentioned maybe, but it was so essentializing of children of color that the, the biggest critics to her paradigm were parents of color. So it's not about saying this group is privileged, this group isn't privileged, this group is doing fine, this group isn't doing fine in broad brush strokes. It's looking at some general ways in which, you know, our society is kind of working and then to sort of step back. It's not uniform, it's not monochrome, you know, it's not painting, you know, all BIPOC folks as being deficit in a variety of ways, none of which are their fault, and all white people as, you know, being evil, problematic colonizers. It's not that. I mean, it's just another, it's another tool in that toolbox that I was talking about. And I think it is important to listen to, you know, who's doing the talking, who's doing the saying, who's offering these things. So mm-hmm. again, back to, you know, my hero, James Baldwin, if James Baldwin uses the N word, he wants it to hurt, right? That's why it's in his work. Um, but it's different for James Baldwin to say it than for Mark Twain to say it, for example. So who's doing the talking? Who is the speaker? Whose children are they, right? And um, I mean, Lisa Delpit, a big figure in education, has a book called Other People's Children. It's something that we're talking about in my educational psychology class tomorrow. Who is the other, right? So, you know, what you were talking about earlier is, and I said this to the class yesterday, who is the we of you, right? Like Carson McCullough said in Member of the Wedding, you are the we of me. Well, I think that everyone, a really interesting thing happened in our class where someone was talking about autistic people and what kind of training they needed, but they didn't know that in one of their classmates is autistic. And that classmate came and talked to me about, you know, how hurt she felt by being objectified. And the way that this relates to what we're talking about is I talked to the class about it without outing her because she didn't really want that to happen and said, you know, in the room is everyone you're talking about. In the room are the they. And our our job is to make the they the we. And I actually, I actually believe that that's why we read literature mm. is to make the they the we. Mm-hmm. That's what James Baldwin was saying. That's about empathy. That's about why we read. That's what happens when you empathize with a protagonist whose life may be very different from yours and you cry about what happens to them and you laugh about what happens to them and they're so different from you, but in the reading of the text, your worlds collide and then you begin to understand it better and then they become a part of your we, right? Mm -hmm. So I think because we don't vilify our we, we vilify who we think the they is. Mm-hmm. And that's another way that I think of the world being divided and why I know it's like overly romantic to say so, but I, I really believe that literature is one of the tools of healing. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And I think that um, for me, the big moments of revelation in reading and in interviewing and in a number of other areas in life have been about that idea that we are together, all of us in this, and that there is some sort of universal human thing that transcends all of these individual kind of 
identity groups that we're all now being kind of put in. I want to end on this. You, you, um, you did mention your work teaching in prisons. Uh, that could be another whole podcast. But if we could just end on this, I mean, what have you learned teaching in the prisons that influences and impacts the work that you're doing in this area? So on my very first, so I've been teaching in the prison since uh, 2007, and I always give my students um, and in prisons and out like an inventory with one. The last question is, what do you think I need to know about you in order to be a good teacher for you? And in this class that I'm teaching right now, one student wrote, I want you to know I'm a good person. And I was so struck by that, that everyone is better than the worst they've ever done. That uh, to be human is, is to make mistakes. And to be human is to have the ability to forgive. There's a way in which I think that part of this culture that I'm writing against in the book is so unforgiving, right? Mm. So J.K. Rowling says one thing that people have a problem with, and then she's like canceled, like the books go off the shelf. I'm not defending her. I didn't hear what she said. I don't know what she means. You know, I'm I, I'm a supporter of the right of all people to not be insulted and to and to live, but it's sort of like, let us be forgiving. Let us not essentialize people by the one thing they say or the one thing that they did that they too regret, right? And that's what I've learned in the prison, you know, that there that there's a difference between doing bad things and being a bad person, which is, by the way, lesson 101 for beginning teachers. You say, separate the kid from the behavior. And I think we need to separate the author from the behavior too. So um, I think that forgiveness, resilience, finding goodness, and kind of not canceling people for the one thing that they did is what I take away from that. <laughs> here, here. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for coming on today and for, for just a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>